So it struck me that this approach to mindfulness of breathing, uh, encouraged by or explained by a sangha, really bears some very remarkable and I think deep similarities with a practice I think most of us, perhaps all of us, are familiar with, namely settling the mind in this natural state. So just to allude to that briefly, some people listening by podcast may not be familiar. Uh, This is explained in, especially in Stilling the Mind, in the book Stilling the Mind, there's a very detailed explanation of this. We'll get to this practice, of course, later in this retreat, but just a brief reference to it, uh, kind of a refresher. And and that is this one practice, which is very simple, and the method remains homogenous all the way through, right? that the core of that is to single-pointedly focus your awareness on the space of the mind, whatever arises within it. And the pith instructions within that context are to sustain the flow of mindfulness without distraction, without grasping. Ma ying. It's so, so much easier to say in Tibetan. Ma ying zime. Only four syllables. Ma ying. Not distracted. Zime. No grasping. And again, from some recent teachings from Yang Tanamboche, a great, great adept, he clarified that single phrase with a reference to being not distracted, that you're not distracted away to any appearances outside of the target, outside of your meditative object. Right? And the zime, the not grasping, or without grasping, no grasping, specifically refers to not grasping onto identifying with any of the subjective mental processes coming up. The thinking, the desiring, remembering, imagining, emoting, and all of that, which is so easy to identify with. Well, you have to be so relaxed at your core, kind of truly, it's a type of an existential relaxation. It's not a technique, it's not a gimmick. Oh, relax, okay, I'm relaxed. This is relaxed right down to your core, you know. The kind of relaxation that you could pass through death fearlessly. That kind of relaxation. That's existential relaxation. Right? right to the core. That's what's necessary here. It actually is. So the, then we can see if, if that's what we mean by relaxation, then this is every bit as much of a challenge as enhancing stability all the way to shamatha, enhancing clarity all the way to shamatha, enhancing relaxation all the way to the ninth stage. Then finished, finished with effort. Right. So that's it. But now what is the, again, the... The nature of this practice is it's doing double duty, performing two functions, quite different, at the same time with the same method. And that is, on the one hand, this is a shamatha method, like focusing on a rock or a Buddha image or anything else, is a good old-fashioned shamatha method designed to enhance these three qualities of shamatha. But on the other hand, bringing this quality of awareness to the mind, enables the mind to heal itself, to balance itself, to unknot itself. They give many metaphors of knots unraveling themselves, a snake tied in knots unraveling itself, and you're watching it happen. You're watching it happen. You're watching your neuroses come up, your resentments coming up, craving, lust, attachment, arrogance, and so forth. You're seeing it come up, but when it comes up within this field, where it's clearly illuminated by awareness, and again, uh, kind of a space of loving presence, you know, that we're, this is not antiseptic, this is not clinical, this is not cold and aloof. This whole practice should be an expression of loving kindness, at least for yourself. And then, of course, since we're not, we don't exist in isolation, 
loving kindness for yourself in interrelationship with everyone else. And just push that to the limit, and of course it's suffused by bodhicitta. It's there in the background, as they say in Tibetan, your practice is imbued with bodhicitta, or at least imbued with loving kindness. So it's a loving presence, and in that quality, free of distraction, free of grasping, then you watch your mind heal. But bear in mind, it, I think it virtually never, virtually never happens homogeneously. Like, you know, it's better at the end of the session than at the beginning, and better today than it was yesterday, and it just goes as smooth every way, and every, in every way, and every day I'm getting better and better and better. You know, well, you may be, but that's not what it feels like, right? This practice, and some of you are old-timers, you know the stuff that it catalyzes, that it brings to mind, and that's what it needs to do. So it's going to be, it's going to be bumpy, it's going to be not homogenous, it's never a smooth curve, at least virtually never. So some days after you've been practicing for months may feel like the worst day you've ever had in your life. And the next two days may be the best you've had in your life. And then it's back to the, you know, back to the drawing board, just doing your, your, your work. But if you watch the progression, and again, in this sustained environment, it's like going to a hospital and staying there until you're well. Go to the infirmary until you're well. Go into retreat until you're well. In that conducive environment, good companions, good teacher, everything good, good, good. And then you watch that. And, of course, how you come out is with shamatha, the five obscurations subdued, and the trait effects, really quite marvelous. And then now you're healthy. Now you're no longer indebted, sick, in chains, enslaved, and lost in a desert track. That's good. That's got to be good. So... That's just a brief review of a practice we'll look into much more carefully later on. But now it really has struck me kind of more vividly than ever before. Kind of like, whoa, 2020. This is what's happening in the body when we're doing this practice. We're bringing the same quality of awareness to this field of the body that we will later bring to the field of the mind. It's again without distraction, without grasping, in the same way. In each of these practices, you are cultivating this simultaneity of stillness and motion the awareness of stillness, of your own awareness, and here, the motion of these fluctuations of prana within your body from breath to breath. Same quality of awareness, different field, right? But now, as you're watching this, with this this loving presence, but discerning mindfulness, then the Buddha says, when your in-breath is long, note that it's long. When it's when it's out-breath is long, note that it's long. When it's in-breath is short, note that it's short. When the out-breath is short, note that it's short. Here's my experience. I don't know how universal it is, but I know it's true for one person. And that is when one sets out into this practice, it's really like there's coarse tuning and fine tuning. And the progression from coarse to subtle is really evident or crops up many times in Buddhism. That you work from the course and you move to the subtle. Four applications of mindfulness. The easiest thing to attend to is your body. And then, okay, feelings, mental and physical, that's subtler. Then mental states, that's subtler. And then these profound interrelationships of phenomena altogether. Okay, subtler. So it goes from course to subtle. And here, it goes from the coarse breathing to subtle breathing, right? But again, I think in a very close parallel, and that is as you're settling the mind in its natural state. You don't just find your mind getting calmer, happier, peaceful, 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 super, super, super duper, and then you shift shamatha. It's a very bumpy road with these upheavals, outer, inner, and secret upheavals, peppering your path, potholing your path, boulders in your path, you know. And it's not obstacles. It's what needs to come up.
They're not obstacles. It's part of the practice, integral to the practice. Don't run away, right? But similarly, as you're attending these fluctuations of the breath, the movements of the body, corresponding to its kind of a primal rhythm here of the respiration, on some occasions you may find the breath is really long, and it goes on long and long, like as if you've been panting, as if you've been running or something. On occasion you may find really deep breaths, not, not hysterical, nothing really you know, wild, but deep breaths going on and on, and you're just hanging out there watching, well, okay, it's deep breaths, in long, out long. And then on occasion you might find in short, out long, in short, out long, in short, how's that happening? Well, it happens. Sometimes it's long in and short out. And that happens. Sometimes it goes long, long, and then short, 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 and then long, 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 and then short, short, short. This is what I would call uh, the course tuning. The course tuning. And just don't mess with it. Don't mess with it. The body, the body-mind system is balancing itself, and it's smarter than you are. Smarter than your intelligence, smarter than your ego. You know, Don't mastermind it. Don't override it. You'll not do it as well. From breath to breath, the body knows. I mean, I'm speaking metaphorically, but the body knows. The body will take what it needs and give back what it doesn't. And then there may come a time when it's subtle, 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 subtle. That is short, 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 short. That may be, just check it out. All I know is my experience. Uh, But you may slip into a cycle, something like 15 per minute. And when that happens, then... Attending to the whole body, one breathes in. Attending to the whole body, one breathes out. The third phase. Now you're going to flow. Now stay with it. Now do not be distracted. Now remain continuously engaged because the fine-tuning is taking place. You've slipped into another mode of tuning. This is the fine-tuning. And that's just going to get finer. That gets kind of homogenous. Because in my experience, limited experience, it doesn't get, you know, 15 cycles, 20 cycles, 25 cycles per minute. It pretty much stays at 15. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying, that's what I found. You know. uh, but what I do find is it doesn't just get shorter and shorter and shorter. The amplitude gets smaller and smaller. And then it's finer and finer and finer tuning until you come to the actual achievement of shamatha. And then you have this extravaganza, this major shift, unprecedented shift of the pranas which now shifts you. It's really a physiological shift of your basis. And Tsongkhapa and others emphasize, this is the big deal about shamatha. Why not just hang out in stage eight? It's really, really good samadhi. Yeah, it is. It really is good, very good samadhi. But you haven't made that shift yet. That shift of pliancy, buoyancy, Xinjiang in Tibetan, that hasn't happened yet. You've had spikes of it, but it's not been stabilized. And that occurs only when you cross the threshold. And now you've kind of retuned, or again, to use a silly metaphor, you've just upgraded your whole system. I just got an up- update on my iPhone this morning. Okay, now, presumably the system's better, I guess. I just said, yes, I accept whatever they did. Oh, yeah, I read it. Uh-huh, yeah, we all read that, don't we? <laughs> sure, accept. <laughs> you know? And if I'm screwed, I'm screwed. Yeah, I'm taking refuge in Apple. Because <laughs> I don't know what I just accepted. I don't have a clue. I just hope it doesn't, you know, zap my brain in the middle of the night. What happened? I've now become an Apple zombie. And so there it is. There it is. This turns out, amazingly, the simple practice of settling the mind is so simple, so profound. Take your breath away. Eventually. <laughs> Not too soon. And then the mindfulness of breathing, what's simpler than that? I mean, breathe in long, breathe out, oh, got it. You know. 
And yet the, the profundity of it is just amazing. And yet it's not the profundity of the technique. The technique is still simple. It's simple. So where's the profundity? Well, we know where the profundity is. It's in the body. It's in the mind. Okay, but now where's the profundity? It's in your Buddha nature. Your Buddha nature. That's where, what's the source of healing? What's the source of virtue? What's the source of genuine happiness? Not DNA, not neurons, not prana. There. So let's go in. Letting your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
as you engage in any shamatha practice, it's imperative to have a crystal clear understanding. What is the object of mindfulness? If your conceptual understanding is vague, your practice will be sloppy. So in this practice, the focus of mindfulness is the space of the body, and within that space, the fluctuations of prana corresponding to the respiration. The quality of awareness we bring to it is discerning mindfulness, cognizant, clear, and aware of the duration of each in-breath, each out-breath, noting quietly without mental conversation, whether it is long or short. You know that when you practice settling the mind in its natural state and come to its culmination, you actually achieve shamatha by that means. Your five senses are totally withdrawn into the mind and within the, within the space of the mind. All the appearances subside. And you're t- attending to an empty space before you invert your awareness in upon itself. And similarly here, we are attending to the space of the body. And we follow this to the end, to the fourth jhana. The senses, of course, are withdrawn entirely. And even the rhythm of the respiration goes flat as breathing ceases in the fourth jhana. There's a strong parallel there. We are watching the system of the body calm more and more deeply till all perturbations, all fluctuations of the respiration disappear. While mindfulness is single-pointedly focused on these fluctuations corresponding to the respiration, we of course must be aware, peripherally, of the arising of thoughts, memories, desires, and so on. 
only insofar as we note them and release them. We don't take an interest in them, we don't follow them, we don't shift our focus over to them. We note them enough that we're not carried away by them. We don't identify with them. And we release them as soon as they arise. As soon as we note them, we release them without a second thought, with no further attention, as we're fully occupied attending to the meditative object. Finally, there's a point from Buddhist epistemology, and that is when wherever we are aware of anything, a physical object, a thought, anything else, in that very moment that we are aware of something else, we are also aware of being aware. It's built into the system. It's not voluntary. So it is true here as we are attending to the fluctuations of prana within the body, corresponding to the respiration, there is at the same time an awareness of being aware of those fluctuations. So rest in that stillness of the awareness of being aware of the breath. Rest there without movement and simultaneously be aware of the movements of the respiration throughout the entire field of the body. Over the coming weeks, we will gradually move inwards. Now the center of the attention is the breath. And in good time, we'll shift the center of gravity of our awareness to the space of the mind and the events taking place there, while the sensations of the breath 
will be peripheral, secondary. And then we'll go even more inwards. Awareness of awareness, where even the activities of the mind, even the space of the mind is peripheral as we rest in the core, coarse to subtle. And then we have a final point, and that is this introduction of the oscillation, or the alternating cycle, taught by Padmasambhava. We can, of course, in this or any other shamatha practice, simply apply pressure, fasten the attention upon the meditative object, and keep it there homogeneously for as long as possible. But for many people, if they do that, the longer they do it, the more exhausted they become. We get drained over time, fresh at the beginning, not so fresh after half an hour, an hour, two hours. But in this method taught by Padmasambhava, there's this oscillation, this alternating. In this case, the arousing, focusing, concentrating during the in-breath, and then relaxing deeply with every out-breath. This is really a matter of breaking up a 24-minute session into many short sessions of only seconds for each cycle. And the time of exertion is very brief maybe two seconds, maybe four or five. But then, you take a break, you relax, you release. You're on vacation. And then another short session, focusing, focusing, but only a matter of seconds, and then relaxing. Many short sessions, but each one with a break. And during the break, just gently sustaining the flow of mindfulness of the meditative object. This might be likened to, in electricity, direct current and alternating current. It turns out that alternating current is much more effective Experiment for yourself, the direct current, 
of simply focusing, focusing for the whole session. All the alternating current. Focusing and release. But throughout the cycle, sustaining the flow of non-conceptual cognizance of the duration of each in and out breath. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
or nasa. So, in the spirit of full disclosure, the comments I made prior to uh, the session, uh, drawing out or suggesting there are some rather profound parallels between these two practices, Asanga's approach to mindfulness of breathing and then the practice of settling the mind into its natural state at that point. And then the whole issue of long and short and then short, short, short and coarse and subtle refinement, that point. And then also this from outer inner to innermost or secret. As we shift from mindfulness of breathing, over time we come to settling the mind and awareness of awareness. Um, I haven't read any of that anywhere. So if you say, where's your source? Uh, There's no sutra, tantra, or commentary I can point to. That's it. Uh, So this is just coming from my own experience, which is just that. That's all that is. It's not some deep truth. It's not profound. It's not a big deal. It's just what I've experienced. And so it might be useful, though, in the sense of, okay, I know this is true for me, what I said. I wasn't making that up. I know it's true for me. But maybe, you know... Not maybe, but actually it's quite true. I'm just weird, you know. And so what's true for me just isn't true for anybody else. That's just my peculiarity. Everybody has a unique body, unique mind. Maybe it's just my trip. Really possible. Or maybe there's one other oddball like me here, and you might find, oh, that really resonates, resonates with my experience. It's possible. But this is more in the realm of Mengok or Pith instruction. Okay? So I'm not making any claims about this, like, oh, this is some great insight, that blah, blah, blah. Nothing like that. But I think it's okay to say, well, this is what I found, and then, then you can take it just as interesting hypothesis with no authority behind it at all. I mean, I'm nobody special at all. I have no authority. None. Even I don't regard myself as an authority, so nobody else should. But you might say, well, that's interesting. Maybe it's true. And then check it out. Just like my, my response to Beata yesterday. right? Maybe it's true. But then you have to check. If you think it's worth checking, if it's not, then forget about it. No problem. Right? But I think that is really the spirit of the Buddha Dharma. Going right back to the time of the Buddha. You remember Ehipasi, Ehipasi, Ehipasika? Remember that one? Come and see. Come and see. When Shariputra met one of the great disciples, he was already stream enterer, I think, at least stream enterer. And he was so impressed by his sheer demeanor, his presence, his presence. And Shariputra came to him and asked, friend, who's your teacher? What's, what, what dharma, what path are you following? And he said, well, I'm very, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm a newcomer. I'm kind of a junior in this. Uh, but my teacher is the, the Buddha. Uh, he's over yonder. You might want to check it. You might want to go to him. And then he gave him this one verse, remember? Ye dharma hetu prabhava hetun deshanta takoto yavatat. Oh, yeah. And so the causes of causally conditioned things and the causes of the cessation, they are taught by the sage. It's a short paraphrase. But he just basically taught him the core teachings of the, the sage, the Tathagata, has taught the causes of causally conditioned things and he has taught this, their cessation to thus are the teachings of the great sage. And he just took, that was, that was Menak. That was Pith instruction. And Shariputra became stream enterer. But the point was, come and see. Come and see, right? Don't come and convert. Come and memorize. Come and believe. Please have faith. Come and see. So we can easily lose that with the weight of tradition. 
and the great authorities, we have so many great authorities in the Theravada, Dogen rises like this great big Mount Everest, you know, in the Zen tradition, and so on. And it's very easy as if between faith and intelligence, faith starts to outweigh intelligence. Then we say, I don't need to check it for myself. Dogen already checked it out. I didn't need to check it. Tsongkhapa is more brilliant than I am, infinitely. I didn't need to check it out. Tsongkhapa already did it. Thank you, Tsongkhapa. Whatever you say, it goes. I am with you, you know. That's fine. That's good faith. But then where's your intelligence? You know. So we can go overboard on either way. Well, never mind faith. That's for stupid people, for religious people. I'm just relying on my intelligence. Good luck with that. That balance between the two. There it is. Oh, yeah. But maybe this is useful this morning. I think maybe it is. I know it is for one person. Maybe for somebody else. You have to see. Maybe useless. I don't know. (laughs) Enjoy your day. See you at 4.30.